One year ago, last March 13th, the federal government announced a sweeping ban on nursing home visitations in an attempt to curb the spread of the novel coronavirus, which by then had already begun its deadly march through the nation's long-term care facilities. What was supposed to be a stopgap solution turned into a year-long odyssey for nursing home residents and their families. Even as the federal government and states released frameworks to resume visitations, persistently high case counts and strict guidelines made in-person visits difficult, if not impossible, for too many people. CMS on March 10th finally lifted visitation restrictions in all but a few specific situations, but families who have gone through 12 months of separation want to make sure that this doesn't happen again. To mark a year of lockdowns and long-term care, I spoke with Miko Cook and Carrie Leljadal, two family advocates who have been active in the push to reopen doors of nursing homes and other long-term care facilities, while also creating lasting reforms for residents and their families. Cook is a co-founder of the Essential Caregivers Coalition, and Lel Jadal leads Illinois Caregivers for Compromise. Here's our conversation. Keep in mind that it was recorded before the visitation ban was formally lifted, and portions have been edited. Miko and Carrie, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us here. We're, We're very excited to be here. Great. So I'm going to start off. Let's start off with Miko and then we can go to Carrie. But just so our listeners have a baseline of understanding, you know, tell me about how you became involved in the essential caregivers advocacy and what your experience has been with the lockdowns throughout this entire past year, really. So my father is a patient living with late stage Alzheimer's in a skilled nursing facility in Albany, New York. And as the lockdown happened, my family was scrambling to figure out what actually was happening and how to get more information and access to my dad. Unfortunately, what ended up happening was even though my mom was talking to the facility every day, we had no contact with my dad for over a hundred days. And despite pleas to the facility, to the ombudsman, to the Department of Health, to the governor, to our uh, state officials. Nobody responded to us. So I took to Facebook and put a plea for anyone who could help us access him. Out of that plea, actually, somebody who knew somebody who worked at the facility was able to get us access. But even more than that, out of that plea, I began to understand that my dad wasn't singular in this issue and that there were thousands of people fighting for the same thing. I was connected through Facebook to another woman, Maydalee Weissman, whose mom is in a facility in California. And together we started a Facebook group that really grew into the Essential Caregivers Coalition. Initially, it was about a place where people could come and talk about what was happening. But we fundamentally understood that we were all scrambling to learn not just the situation, but the entire breakdown of what the system was and who controlled what and what did things like the 1135 waiver mean and who did you contact when you needed help. And so we became a national advocacy group to help people learn about what is the system, how does the system work, where is your loved one in the system, and how can we all come together to change that system, especially how we can create a federal designation for an essential caregiver that 
is put into place so that when the next public emergency happens, and it will, we will never be 100% locked out again. Great. I think that's great background, and I think that'll be a great seed for my first question. But Carrie, I just want to let you introduce yourself before we get into the conversation. Okay. So, like everyone else, last year when the lockdown started, I have a 33-year-old son that is developmentally disabled and has a rare seizure disorder. And he lives in a in, intermediate care facility for adults with developmental disabilities. And our building is one half the ICF. The other half of our building is actually skilled nursing, you know, true traditional skilled nursing. Ours is one of the few. We're not corporate owned. We are privately run. It is a very personal, almost family type business. And But we all face the same issue. I wasn't allowed to see my son. I wasn't able to get in and figure out what was going on. He had to have all his doctor's appointments canceled because they weren't allowed to let him out of the building. I was 128 days without physically seeing my son without at least a piece of glass between us. And then for the first month, I was only allowed to see him at doctor's appointments, socially distanced. No matter who we are, and where we fall in this, we shouldn't be separated from our families and children, even if they are adults, should never be separated from their family. So I have been since almost day one, publicly going anywhere and anywhere I could to get somebody to listen, to try to get help. Oh, I did the governor's office. I did state representatives. I've been to the media. Um, I talked to our local newspaper here in Southern Illinois to do one of the first stories they did about long-term care and the virus because nobody realized what that isolation meant and that, ooh, no visitors means, yeah, just that, no visitors. But we're not visitors. We are way more than that. You know, we are an essential part of that care team who provides care to our loved ones every day of the week. And they're, you know, they're lost without us. Yeah. I think that's a very important perspective and that, you know, I will give you full disclosure. I supported the lockdowns last March. So did One I. Of the things that, okay. <laughs> One of the things that really scared me the most at the start of all this was reading the local news articles from people who maybe didn't think COVID was that serious, who were worried about, uh, you know, who were distrusted the nursing home operators. And I totally understand, you know, the nursing home industry has had its issues over the years and you're entrusting the care of your loved one. And I understand why you might not trust it. But I think that lack of understanding about how much of a role that the family and friends and, and other loved ones play in it is something that has been ignored. And I don't think a society that understood that would have let it go on this long. You know, we are a year later. And the fact that we, we just, just before we started recording today to, to date today's episode, it's, it's Monday, March 8th. And the CDC issued some really good news about visitation for people who have been vaccinated. That doesn't apply to healthcare settings though. So hopefully get some more information out about that and some more guidance. But Miko, I'm glad you brought up the idea of the next pandemic. So because Obviously, we're still in the middle of this one, but there probably will be future health events like this. So just briefly, you know, what, what are sort of you asking for in terms of a federal designation for an essential caregiver? What would that look like? And, and what sort of protections and rights are you looking to hopefully have codified? So when it comes to an essential caregiver, I think the key point to note is what Carrie has already said is we're not talking visitors. 
we are talking people who are massive part of the emotional, social well-being and sometimes physical well-being of residents. So the idea is that an essential caregiver is someone within maybe the family circle or even outside of the family circle, maybe a friend who is designated. And it would be actually even optimal if it was two people, because putting all of this responsibility on one person is a lot that the resident could designate as their go-to support person. This person would be trained and tested and PPE'd up is exactly as staff so that they would not pose any more threat than staff would. And essentially, when you think about it, you know, Carrie as a mom or me as a daughter, we are already doing everything we can to protect our loved ones from the virus. So for us to be trained and tested, we really aren't going to pose any more of a threat in that we will do everything we can to see their loved ones. In addition to that, the idea is that irregardless of the infection rate, irregardless of the outbreak situation in a facility, if you are trained and tested and equipped as staff, then you should have the access points as staff. And you would be limited to just focusing on the person you're with. Obviously, you know, this isn't about walking into a facility and wandering around. We want to make sure that everyone is safe, but we don't want to jeopardize the well-being of our loved ones with this blanket approach to just creating safety by locking the doors. Yeah. And I think the blanket approach is something that I think we see all too often in the way that we regulate and the way that we just even in general perceive people who live in senior living and care facilities or any type of long-term care facilities, whether it's people with developmental disabilities or mental issues, is that there is kind of a lack of autonomy and that we don't really think about, we don't really think about the, uh, the individual needs. It's, it's very one size fits all. And I'm going to guess, Miko and Carrie, either one of you can jump in, but I'm going to guess when you raised this issue to the people who run the facility, the, the question was just, you know, we can't take this risk. It's not, you know, we're, our hands are tied and we don't want to necessarily stick our necks out there. That's my guess of what you heard. I could be wrong, but I'm guessing that's so, what you heard. The facility my son is in, I mean, all along it has been, you know, we have to do what CMS and Illinois Department of Public Health have said. The only difference is, and part of it is because they knew I'd been so involved with IDPH and the Ombudsman and our legislators about the rules that were coming down when we started Compassionate Care in Illinois, that I didn't get the pushback that the majority of people got out of other facilities. I was in, from the time Illinois issued Compassionate Care guidelines, I was in in less than a week. So I'm very lucky. But they knew what was coming. We had worked together. They didn't want to keep the families out. They were required. You know, I mean, it's real hard to tell somebody, oh, you can't come visit your own child, especially that when that mom lives less than two blocks away and was there every day of the week. Yeah. You know, regularly I we would have staff bring my son, put come over with him in his wheelchair just to make it easy. So... For us, even more so, this was such a big change and was getting anybody to listen why this wasn't working. Mm -hmm. I think my dad's situation is a little bit different 
in that he is in a one-star facility where he is at. And so while I would love to say that the facility was doing all it's can all that it could to help accommodate based on the restrictions that were given, that wasn't actually true. One of the biggest things I've learned in this journey is that there is a very wide spectrum of the type of care that facilities give out. Carrie's son is really lucky to be in a fantastic one. Unfortunately, that's not the case for my dad. So when it came to trying to discuss an essential caregiver option with that facility, I mean, my mom couldn't even get the facility to return calls. So one of the biggest issues relative to this entire situation is every situation is different because every facility is different. The guidelines in every state is different. And so trying to make change that affects all equally is, it feels like a massive uphill battle. Mika, I'm glad you brought up the point about some of the issues that you've had, because one of the things, and I wanted to stick with you for this follow-up question, we're hearing a big push for uh, reform in the industry. And I think this is one of the times where we might actually see something like real reform. There actually is a lot of political will clearly with the death toll and the isolation and all the things that went wrong. I think there is a lot of will to make that change. But I feel like too often the individual families' voices get lost in that conversation. They tend to be dominated by, you know, it tends to be the industry versus the advocates. And I feel like a lot of the people and what they really want fall through the cracks. So I wanted to give you the opportunity, you know, what are some of the things as state and local officials ponder reforms? What are some of the changes that you hope based on the experiences that you've had and on top of the essential caregiver designation? I would say the number one change that I would like to see across long-term care is giving families a seat at the table when it comes to defining policy. Moving forward, somehow family, you know, person-centered care and families who are the voice of the person receiving the care has kind of been left on the sidelines. And I don't think that you can really address all the needs and all of the issues of an individual person with a form like my dad would, you know, my mom had to fill out for my dad that was like, tell us about his hobbies. This isn't enough. I mean, this is... 70 plus years of a man's life and the majority of them lived with these people. So who better to incorporate into the conversation than the families as it relates to their care and well-being going forward? I would absolutely say that's the number one thing that has to happen. At a larger scope, you know, the conversations around staffing and finances and all of these are starting to bubble to the surface, which is fantastic. I definitely think there needs to be transparency into the finances of what is going on in a lot of these institutions. I know that there's the conversation of, well, we can't just have more staff because we can't afford it. And I know that a lot of the facilities are looking at bankruptcy as a result of the coronavirus, but really, it's the same age old issue for anything, which is you got to follow the money. So where is that money going? And why is it such an issue to pay 
people who are dedicating their career to taking care of other people and paying them less than what somebody at Burger King would make. So we have some big issues to tackle. And for that, I am really grateful that coronavirus happened. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think I think the transparency issue is one, and I'm glad you brought that up. That's kind of one of my pet issues. I think if you start with that transparency, I think you solve a lot of the problems, the, the trickle-down issues, because, you know, again, like I said, you were kind of locked into this debate where if you read any national news story, you know, the facilities and the trade groups, they will say, we don't have the money. And then the resident advocates will say either they do have the money and they're not spending it on the right mm-hmm. stuff, or... We don't know because we're not really sure where the money is going. And those two things are generally true. So my mm-hmm. point is, it's going to take a lot more money generally to create the kind of landscape we want to build new nursing homes that maybe don't have two people per room, that maybe have private bathrooms, that maybe have that maybe are designed from the ground up with infection control in mind, all these great things. You know, the nursing home infrastructure in this country is very old relative to other care settings. And I think when the conversation boils down to, you know, we need more money versus no, you don't, the residents lose out because nothing really changes. So I think if we can have a frank and honest discussion about where the money is going, how it's spent, and maybe putting some breaks on where the money can or some guardrails on where that money can be spent, I think that's a reform that will trickle down a lot of other reforms from it. Absolutely. Well, and then you also have, like in Illinois, you can't even vote here. Unless you get approval from the state, there's so many regulations in Illinois that they've tied people's hands about if they wanted to build a new building and make things better. So we need some strong federal guidance to help the states try to get an alignment because there's no alignment in the state, let alone county to county, city to city, even state to state. There's no alignment anywhere right now that adds to the dis corruption and the lack of cohesiveness of care. Yeah. I think another good place to start is to look and see what is working. You know, I was just recently told of a facility, I think it's in Maryland, where they have had zero cases of COVID. Zero. And the reason has to do with how much they were putting behind infection training prior to all of this ever happening. So they were ready. And I think, you know, taking the models that are working and starting to build from there, you know, you got to start from a positive point and not just jump into the hole of the negatives. I think that would be very helpful to you. Yeah. And again, I think that goes to the transparency. You know, I think so much of what so much of long-term and post-acute care is kind of a black box. We don't really know what is happening. You know, the funding, uh, there's not a ton of public data about ownership and where the money is going. And sharing best practices, I think, is another thing that we, if I have heard some positives from coronavirus, it has been that, that a lot of operators have been able to get together and actually talk about what works and what doesn't. To that end, Carrie, you know, I wanted to ask you to give a little bit about your experience because it seems like you have before the lockdown, based on what I'm hearing from you and Miko, that you had sort of a positive experience with the facility for your son. What are some of the things that you think that facility has done right? And one of the reasons, you know, why you seem to have good things to say about them? Well, first of all, we don't have the turnover that the majority of facilities in the country have. I mean, we have an executive director and director of nursing that have both been there for a lot more than 20 years. 
the number of staff we have in our building that is 10 and more years is very impressive. Our owner is hands-on. His office is right there on the property. He knows the residents by name on both sides of the building. He gears what they do towards our residents. Are they perfect? No. Do they make mistakes? Yes. But in the the thing I've known this whole year was I never worried about my son being neglected. I never worried about my son being abused. I never worried about him not getting the care he needed. You know, was it always done the way I would have liked it? No. But it was done and he was well cared for. And so was every other resident in that facility. You know, prior to COVID, we were, doors were open 24-7. There was never, oh, well, you can't come visit because it's 2 in the morning. If we wanted to go in at 2 in the morning, we were allowed. You know, families were part of it. And when you can call and get the director of nursing on the phone or get the owner of the facility to return an email or a phone call consistently, that makes a huge difference. The stories that I hear from people of, it's taken them a month to get a live person to speak to them is unacceptable. You know, where Miko talked about patient-centered care, really what this needs is family-centered care. If you take the model that's used in pediatrics and move it to long-term care of how they look at family-centered care, it would make everyone's life better because then you have input from everybody that's part of that team, from the family to the resident to the medical professionals. They're all on one level playing field. Yeah, I think your point about, I had a feeling that would be your answer when I asked you about what what are the things that you like? And the answer, when I ask that question to family members and residents, the, the answer always is the staff. It's the staff that goes above and beyond. It's the staff that is there. First of all, the lack of turnover is a great point. There was just a, that study that came out, I think it was last week, showing, you know, median turnover at United States nursing homes is something like 94%. You know, these facilities are turning over. They're almost their whole staff in a year. And I had a great conversation with Lori Porter, who runs the CNA organization. And it was really enlightening for me to hear her talk about how for so many CNAs, these frontline caregivers, you know, not only are they not making enough money, not only do they have very intimate, very difficult jobs caring for people who who need help, but so much of their life and so much of their working life is trying to get used to the parade of administrators who come in. You know, you just get you, mm-hmm. you work really well with one administrator, but they're gone in six months. And then you got to invest more time into learning how the new one likes to do things. And then they're gone within three months. And that's not the kind of environment that is going to be conducive to good care, whether you have a brand new building or whether you have a really old building, the staff is really where it is. Mm-hmm. Very much so. One of we have staff on my son's side of the building that are just considered direct care staff. They're not considered CNAs, but I mean we have multiples that have been there fifteen and twenty years, and they will tell you they're there because this is their home, this is their residence home. You know, on our side of the building, residents aren't there for one, two, or three years. They're there for ten, twenty, thirty years through their entire adult life. So it needs, you know, in those, especially in those kind of settings, you need consistency, but it needs, everywhere needs it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the staff needs to feel supported. And this is true of any job. 
how can you give your heart to something that feels like it is not giving anything to you or any good reason to? I mean, I know I've spoken to staff where they, they love the residents as their own family. So this entire year of lockdown is breaking them just as much. I just recently read a post of a woman who works in activities programming for a facility. And she said she locks herself in the bathroom sometimes and just cries because of how hard this is to see these people go through this. And that's going everywhere. I hear that from staff all day long in every place. Yeah. 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 People don't realize, and that's another really good point. I'll shamelessly steal from Lori Porter because she's really (laughs) good at what she does. But you know, her point is that this is a career for some people. One of the big solutions you hear a lot of people talk about, especially from my point of view, you know, writing about finance and policy, it's a different mindset. You know, a lot of the policy people, a lot of the finance people think that the answer is, you know, we got to make sure we have a development pipeline for these workers so that they know they can rise up through the ranks one day. But Lori made a great point with me when we had a conversation and she was like, you know, some people love being CNAs. They don't want to do anything else. They love working Mm -hmm. with the people. This is a calling for them. They don't want to run a building. I don't want to run a nursing home. So I understand that. That seems like a very stressful job. And, you know, it's not a job I would want to do because it's a ton of responsibility. It's a very complex task. And so I could understand that if you get into the game, if you get into the industry because you just have a calling, so many people, I'm sure you hear it all the time, you know, they cared for their elderly loved ones when they were younger and they just have always had a special relationship with older people, people with disabilities, people who just need, you know, some help with everyday care. You need to support them for what they are and not necessarily assume that everyone's goal is to move up and beyond it because it's such valuable work that so many people take a lot of pride in and get a lot of really deep, you know, sometimes spiritual fulfillment out of. And I think we forget that. Absolutely. I mean, You think about the tasks that a CNA has to go through on a daily basis with how many residents, right? And now you also are asking them to come to this work in the middle of a global pandemic where they at any moment could are being exposed to the virus. And there are so many who are just throwing themselves into the work because they love it. I mean, that is a calling. That's not a job. And we need to respect and reward that level of dedication and support them in that. Yeah. So we're bumping up at the end of our time here, but I want to give you guys the platform, give you guys the final word. Carrie, I'll start with you. Our audience is a really diverse group of nursing home operators, people who are involved in the investment space, therapy providers, vendors, all sorts of folks who are involved in the wider ecosystem. And one of my goals is to make sure that the resident and the family voices are really centered in terms for the reform efforts. So, you know, to leave us off, what do you want people to know about your experience over the last year? And what are your overall hopes for reform going forward? The hardest part of the last year has been knowing how many people are just isolated by themselves, that their families don't even know how to attempt to get in or attempt to be able to make the next step because providers are not sharing that information. So we need transparency, even with this information. We need clear-cut, concise information on a regular basis, which doesn't happen. We also, to move forward, Like you said, besides private rooms and private bathrooms, 
we need to get to smaller buildings along the lines of, you know, the greenhouse project or something that makes it where it is more individually based. So also the staff then becomes more personally tied because they're not taking care of 50 residents. You know, there's 10 or 12 in a house, and that's what you take care of. And we're going to see more consistency of care, which is going to bring more quality of care. And in the end, that's what we need for our loved ones is quality of care. Yeah, and Mika? I would say to speak to your audience within the industry is that make the family members your partners in this experience. If this isn't a you versus them kind of situation, and I've tried to help the people within the Essential Caregiver Coalition when they come and look for answers is say, you know, reach out and see the humanity on both sides. I think more can be accomplished by bringing the families to the table in terms of trying to make a solution that works for everyone, as opposed to just cutting out anyone, any one person in the conversation. And that includes everything from reform to public health policy. I think a lot of this could have been avoided. Of course, the lockdown had to happen, but there needed to be a revisitation of what the policy was and talking to all the people affected and saying, okay, here's where we are. And maybe we've made some mistakes, but let's work together to make this better. Radical transparency, radical honesty, stuff that tends to be missing in <laughs> a lot of society, but especially with this. And, and I've always been a big proponent of, you know, let's own up to where the problems were. Let's all sit down at the table. Let's figure out a path forward. Because so much, we hit the nail on the head. So much of the dynamic is us versus them. And it's really, when that is the case, the people who are living in the facilities are the ones who lose, I think, ultimately. So thank you so much, Miko and Carrie, for taking the time uh, this afternoon. Um, thank you so much for the work that you've been doing and you know providing those connections with the families. I know it's really important and, and best of luck in your advocacy work going forward. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank, thank you. you so much, Alex. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. For more news and insights on the skilled nursing industry, subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters at skillednursingnews.com. I'm Alex Banco, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network, Chicago, Illinois.